Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast in which we shall learn about the history of U.S. tensions with Iran and the reality that it's been the irrationality of multiple Republican administrations working hand-in-glove with the far-right government of Israel that has thwarted any chance of peace. Clips today come from Backstory, Democracy Now!, Intercepted, On the Media, The Zero Hour, and Unauthorized Disclosure. Well, the 1980s were dominated by the war between Iran and Iraq, an incredibly bloody and long war. Um, The United States took Iraq's side in that war. Why is that? This is a complex story because although the United States initially took the side of Iraq, its official policy would evolve to become the support of a war of attrition between Iran and Iraq so that both of them would be left weakened at the end of this ordeal. But initially, the United States took the side of Iraq because Iraq's invasion of Iran took place smack in the middle of the hostage crisis. Saddam invaded Iran from its southeastern borders on September 22nd, 1980. But in subsequent interviews that I personally have done and the oral history project that we co-convened in 2007, we've come to understand that the United States not only knew about this invasion ahead of time, but in fact greenlighted Saddam's advancements into Iranian territory and even shared intelligence with the Iraqi military at this point. And the reason they did this was because they wanted to pressure Khomeini into submission by first releasing the hostages. But the larger rationale that was driving this was that the United States was absolutely certain that Khomeini would fall, that Khomeini's vision of Islamic Republic had no legs whatsoever inside Iran. They thought that at best, he would last half as long as Mossadegh did as prime minister. And they saw this as something that was really alien to Iranian society, so they're not going to tolerate it. Well, you wrote a book called uh, Becoming Enemies, so (laughs) I got to ask you how you explain the Iran-Contra affair where the United States actually sold arms to Iran. Yes, it's the Reagan administration's relationship with Khomeini's Iran is fascinating because right off the bat, it starts in a transactional way. The Iranians, if you remember, held on to the hostages until the eve of Reagan's inauguration. And that was not an accident. They wanted to really deliver the message that they were the reason why Jimmy Carter was humiliated and was driven out of office. This was something that Republican operatives and President Reagan himself kind of tacitly approved of and appreciated. They saw them as really these kind of cunning transactional actors that they were not so irrational afterwards. So the Iran-Iraq war starts to take off. Iran immediately starts to expand its military uh, role outside the bounds of its own territory by funding radical Shia groups in Iraq and in southern Lebanon. Khomeini was a kind of a transnational Islamist who believed that the cause of exporting the Iranian revolution was actually very important to the survival of the Islamic Republic itself. So the way to safeguard 
this newfound country was to actually make sure that similar-minded Islamists throughout the region were nourished by the grace of this revolution. So the founding of Hezbollah was really important in this whole scenario. And Hezbollah obviously immediately set about attacking Western targets, but in the Lebanese civil war, uh, also really perfected the habit of hostage-taking. And around 1982, the first waves of these hostage takings took place. And eventually, uh, more and more hostages were routinely taken and released. And the hostage taking of American personnel in southern Lebanon was what triggered this arms for hostages deal, as it was called. But basically, the deal was that the United States would sell arms to Iran and use that money to fund anti-Sandinista Contras in Nicaragua, which was against a law passed by Congress. And on top of all this, to use Israelis as the middlemen between Iran and the United States. So the, <laughs> you have this um, kind of remarkable episode where the Israelis, they're literally the contact people between the Iranian government and the United States. And Hezbollah, obviously, is holding on to the hostages, and the Iranians are the party that immediately convinces them to release the hostages. In the wake of 9-11, President Bush referred to the Iranians as the axis of evil, along with Iraq and North Korea. How was that message received in Iran? With a great deal of shock and dismay, especially since it arrived at a time when Iran had been softening its outlook toward the West. If you recall, in 1996, a reformist president, reformist movement, had emerged inside of Iran, headed by Mohammad Khatami, who got elected in a landmark election in 1997 on a platform of reforming the Islamic Republic. And then 9-11 happens, and the... Bush administration basically decides to paint the entirety of the Middle East of really Muslim majority countries in the world with a broad brush by introducing binaries such as, you know, you're either with us or against us. And Iran found itself in this very difficult position. Now, initially, Khatami signaled to the Americans that Iran would do everything that it can in the campaign to get rid of the Taliban in Afghanistan, which had not been friendly to Iran. Iran, in fact, six months prior to 9-11, almost went to war against the Taliban. So, you know, these ironies were kind of constantly pointed out by Iranians and reformists and say, look, you know, we are naturally more aligned with you than the Taliban are, or Saddam is, but you need to listen to us. And But then the Bush administration basically decided to go on this ideological crusade of ridding the world of what it thought to be terrorist regimes, and it decided that Iraq, Iran, and North Korea were going to be its kind of the centerpiece of its project. And Khatami was put in a difficult position domestically because the hardliners were empowered as a result of this rhetoric and started to kind of go at him by saying, you know, all these concessions that you've made to the Westerners, all this kind of groveling you've done at the feet of liberal democracy and reforms, etc. This is what you're getting in return for it. They don't care about democracy in Iran. Um, all they want is to project American power. And now they're going to exploit this moment. 
I talked to Colonel Wilkerson last week and asked him about the parallels between the escalation between the U.S. and Iran today and the 2003 run-up to war with Iraq. Ever since 9-11, the beast of the national security state, the beast of endless wars, the beast of the alligator that came out of the swamp, for example, and bit Donald Trump just a few days ago, is alive and well. America exists today to make war. How else do we interpret 19 straight years of war and no end in sight? It's part of who we are. It's part of what the American empire is. We are going to lie, cheat, and steal, as Pompeo is doing right now, as Trump is doing right now, as Esper is doing right now, as Lindsey Graham is doing right now, as Tom, Tom Cotton is doing right now, and a host of other members of my political party, the Republicans, are doing right now. We are going to cheat and steal to do whatever it is we have to do to continue this war complex. That's the truth of it, and that's the agony of it. What we saw President Trump do was not in President Trump's character, really. Those boys and girls who were getting on those planes at Fort Bragg to augment forces in Iraq, if you looked at their faces, and even more importantly, if you looked at the faces of the families assembled along the line that they were traversing to get onto the airplanes, you saw a lot of Donald Trump's base. That base voted for Donald Trump because he promised to end these endless wars. He promised to drain the swamp. Well, as I said, an alligator from that swamp jumped out and bit him. And when he ordered the killing of Qasim Soleimani, he was a member of the national security state in good standing. And all that state knows how to do is make war. I want to turn to President Trump. We took action last night to stop a war. We did not take action to start a war. George W. Bush had the opportunity to assassinate Soleimani. Uh, President Obama had the opportunity to assassinate Soleimani. Um, they didn't. Trump did. And you had dealings with Soleimani. Uh, you were just explaining in part one of our discussion what he uh, did in Afghanistan and how Vice President Pence was lying when he talked about him being involved in the 9-11 attacks. Here you have one of the most egregious things of what we did, and one of the biggest reasons that neither of the two previous presidents decided to do what Donald Trump did. We have just, as we did with torture from 2002 to 2007, 2008, as we substantiated for the world that torture was okay, we have now okayed the killing of recognized members of other states' government. That's what Soleimani was. No matter how heinous we may paint him, he was a member of an established state's government, and we assassinated him. That is a very dangerous precedent to have set. You may have heard the members of the Russian Duma, Vladimir Putin himself and others in Russia talking about this dangerous precedent. Um, had it been the Israelis who did this, Amy, they would have done it and sent flowers to Tehran. It would have been completely covert. There would have been no boasting, no public thumping of the chest and so forth. That's the narcissist in the White House that caused that to happen. But even if you were doing it that way, you would have to think about this consideration that eventually it would become public that you had done it. And you, by doing it, had sanctioned the killing of other state actors. Now, what we're looking at here, for example, let's just put the shoe on the other foot. We're looking at someone coming in to Washington and assassinating one of our leaders, 
whether it be a congressman or a member of the executive branch or someone else. We have just sanctioned that. We have become the law of the jungle rather than as we have been since 1945, the greatest supporter of international law and the rule of law in general across the face of the globe with torture and with killing other state recognized individuals of their government. We have become the tiger, the lion, the bear, the alligator in that jungle. It's not a very, very good precedent to have set, as the Russians indicated. The Chinese have said similar things. It's a terrible precedent to have set. And now we have to steel ourselves for what the reaction might be. Can you elaborate on what Soleimani did back when you were in the Bush administration? You were working with him. Well, what we had in the first days of our reaction in Afghanistan was not really a military action. It was a CIA action. Donald Rumsfeld actually got furious with the army because he couldn't get into Afghanistan fast enough. If you look at a map, you'll see why he couldn't get into Afghanistan fast enough. Of course, we had to go over to Pakistan, Uzbekistan, and ask them for overflight rights and for uh, logistics rights and so forth in order to even get into Afghanistan. But what you had was you had essentially a war between the Taliban, Mullah Omar and his group, uh, what was left of al-Qaeda, and the Northern Alliance, which the CIA had been supporting all along. They had killed Massoud, the line of Panjshir, the guy who was really leading the Northern Alliance, too. Al-Qaeda had killed him about the same time they did the 9-11 attacks. So it was really chaotic. When we did get some special operators in and we got a lot of aircraft in with, of course, precision guided munitions, then we began to turn the tide and we began to get to a situation where I can tell you we were all almost apoplectic at the time. We didn't know who was going to invest Kabul. We didn't know that we hadn't just turned Kabul over to the Northern Alliance and thus to a continuation of the last 30 years of warfare. So we were very anxious to make sure everything worked the way we wanted it to after that so-called victory. And one of the people, one of the groups that helped us the most, as you might imagine, were the Iranians, because the Iranians looked at the Taliban as their enemy, too. You may recall that the Taliban had killed some Iranian diplomats and others uh, in the months prior. So the Iranians were all for our eliminating the Taliban as the legitimate government of Afghanistan, and so pitched in to help. As I said, once President Bush had given his speech about the axis of evil and included Iran in that, uh, the, their desire to help was not quite as ardent as, as it was before, but they nonetheless realizing, as Iran almost always does, I hate these people who say they're irrational. They're far more rational than we are. Let me say that again. The leadership in Tehran is far more rational than the leadership in Washington. So they decided they would continue to help us because, after all, the enemy of my enemy you know, all that old good business about uh, the enemy, my enemy is my friend. Um, and, and they did, in fact, continue to help us all the way through the bond conference. And Suleimani was part of that at the time. As the only non-North American on this panel, uh, let me just say, people in the US and to a lesser extent Canada, Maz, uh, aren't that familiar with 
their own history, let alone Middle East history. And the problem is, if you go to someone like Iran or Iraq, people are discussing what happened 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. It matters. It influences events today. Whereas we reset the clock every two minutes. We can't remember what happened last year, uh, let alone 50, 60 years ago. So this is a very well-informed crowd of Intercept members, readers, listeners. Quick question here. How many people, if I say Operation Ajax, does that mean anything to you? Raise your hand if it means anything to you. Not many people. Operation Ajax is the 1953 CIA coup against Mohammed Mossadegh. Right? If I say to you the Island of Stability speech, does that mean anything to you? Jimmy Carter went to Iran in... Jimmy Carter, lovable grandpa Jimmy Carter, went to Iran New Year's Eve 1977, stood up, guest of the Shah, and said, I you know, praised the Shah for making Iran a island of stability in a troubled region and said the people loved the Shah. That was at the same time that Amnesty was saying that the Shah had killed more people in executions than any other government in the world. Torture was beyond belief. That was Jimmy Carter. Uh, U.S. Uh, Iran Air 655. We've been talking about it a little bit in recent days, but until last week, I don't think anyone in the U.S. media at least talked about the fact that in 1988, the United States Navy we, shot We did down. unintercepted, but sorry. I know you did, Jeremy. I'm talking about the rest. Um, shot down Iran Air 655, killing 290 people, 66 kids, uh, majority of them Iranian civilians. No discussion of this. Well, George, George H.W. Bush uh, said I in response never- to that, I'll never apologize for the United States of America okay. ever. I don't care, care what, what the, the facts, facts are. are. Yeah. And, and, and Ronald Reagan expressed regret, but never apologized. They never took legal liability. They made a payment to the families of the people who died. And then they gave a medal to the captain of the ship who shot down the airliner. Can you imagine if the Iranians shot down a U.S. flight of 290 Americans now or back then, and then gave a medal to the captain. We would be rightly outraged. This stuff isn't just forgotten in places like Iran. Then we say, why do they hate us? Why are they shouting? Why do they protest? We have to understand the basics of our history, of the relationships between the US and Iran, the UK and Iran. Otherwise, we're never going to get out of this shithole. Nargis Bajogli, tell us who Qasem Soleimani was. Qasem Soleimani was um, the major general of the Quds forces of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard in Iran. Uh, the Quds force is the, the main force of the Revolutionary Guard, which is in charge of extraterritorial um, uh, uh, operations of the Revolutionary Guard, meaning operations outside of Iran. Now, uh, Soleimani himself, uh, at, during the 1980s, was a veteran of the 1980-88 war with Iraq, which was the longest conventional war of the 20th century. That is where he learned how to fight. That is where he began to learn uh, and, and to develop his understanding of international politics. And one of the things I think it's important to remember is that the war of the 1980s, which was an extremely bloody war, it was one of the uh, wars in which trench warfare was fought for the first time after World War I. Um, this is a war in which, uh, for the, the, all of the, uh, political and, uh, elite of the Islamic Republic, and especially those who fought in the war, they began to understand their viewpoint of international politics in that time, in which they saw how the United States and Western powers were supporting and supplying, uh, Iraq, uh, with weapons and, uh, intelligence, uh, during that time. So he comes about in that, in that, battlefield and in those wars. Um, from that point on, he then goes on into the Quds Force. Um, 
And what is important to understand here is that as important of a general as he was, and he was significant, um, he nonetheless, the, within the Revolutionary Guard, um, one of the things that the Revolutionary Guard has become so adept at, because it sort of had to, is asymmetrical warfare. Uh, but what that means on the ground is that uh, decision-making within the Revolutionary Guard, and I studied them for 10 years in Iran, and I saw this no matter what area that they were functioning in, decision-making power and leadership within the Revolutionary Guard is very much done in an ad hoc way, and that is a legacy of the 1980 wars, uh, the 1980s war. Um, and so Qasem Soleimani was in charge of uh, the Revolutionary Guard's relationship, especially in the Middle East. Um, and with Iraqi and Lebanese forces, Shia forces. Uh, but he was not the only one who was able and uh, uh, to, to create these relationships, nor was he the only one who was uh, doing these strategic maneuverings within the region. Uh, he, he rose to prominence as a public figure uh, in around 2013. And part of the reason for that is that there was a very large uh, media, um, a very large media campaign uh, created for uh, Qasem Soleimani within Iran. Uh, I followed around his media teams for a few years and saw how they made uh, documentaries about him, music videos, films. There's uh, fiction films about him now made in Iran, and uh, films and documentaries and, and, uh, and music videos made in Arabic as well for Arab audiences. So he—and the reason that they were doing that at the time was to shore up support for uh, uh, Iran's fight against ISIS. Because of that, he becomes this really prominent public figure, which is something that we often don't see within Iran. You know, in order to sort of understand Soleimani, you have to understand that this hero-like status that he began to have is not very common within um, the culture of the Islamic Republic. They make heroes out of martyrs, but they don't necessarily make heroes out of living figures. Qasem Soleimani, though, did become a hero because of this concerted media effort in order to rally up support for the fight against. ISIS. A real war with Iran promised actual catastrophe. But administration hawks and their media proxies nonetheless got busy trying to win the hearts and minds of the American public using the same techniques deployed in the run-up to deadly fiascos in Vietnam, Afghanistan, and Iraq. Certainly Nathan Robinson, editor of Current Affairs magazine, had seen it before, beginning with the government making misleading claims and the media running with them. Some of us remember the, the New York Times was widely criticized for this reporting in the lead up to the Iraq war because the New York Times would run headlines like Saddam intensifies his quest for A-bomb parts or nuclear weapons parts, says U.S. Technically, there's nothing wrong about that headline. The U.S. does say that. But of course, we trust the media to have vetted the information, that they've actually got some reason why they think it's credible enough to put it in the newspaper. Unfortunately, that's often not true. 
So I just saw an example of this. Vox was writing an article that was very critical of what a U.S.-Iran war would look like. It said it'd be a disaster. But they said, as a fact, Iran has killed 600 Americans. Well, when you click the link, it's a Military Times article saying the Pentagon says Iran has killed 600 Americans. But the Pentagon says part then disappears in the repetition. And that's what you saw on Vox. And it was pointed out to them. And they've now changed it to say the Pentagon says. But you really got to watch out for this stuff. But it doesn't take someone in Trump land to confuse the issue. Here is Democratic Congressman Gregory Meeks on CNN. I have not seen any strategy on behalf of this president. That's what bothers me. That's what bothers him, not the assassination per se, because on both sides of the aisle, the conversation begins with the presumption that if it serves American interests, it is our right and duty to kill him. But you dispute that calculus. You have to go deeper and ask, well, strategy for what? America presumes that the pursuit of nothing more than its own self-interest with no regard to the interests of other countries is a reasonable objective. And I don't think that's self-evident. A lot of people are going to be saying, well, the president was impulsive. He didn't follow the right process. There should have been strategy. But they need to ask a deeper question, which is, is it acceptable for the United States to assassinate foreign officials? And what is the standard? Can anyone do this? Under what circumstances? circumstances, is it reasonable to take an action like this? Most of the Democratic presidential hopefuls seem to be criticizing Trump. Bernie Sanders is the only candidate who did not lead with Soleimani was a terrorist or a bad guy of some kind, but led with, I voted against Iraq. I knew what would happen in Iraq. We're not going to do that again. Pete Buttigieg gave a nothing statement. It said, you know, I have questions about how this decision was made. Well, you could say that about pretty much any decision ever made. You could say that the crisis was triggered when the U.S. bombed and killed uh, some Iran-sponsored militias in Iraq, which resulted in the storming of the embassy compound, which provoked the Soleimani assassination, which provoked the Iran missile attack, and whatever happens next. Uh, but didn't begin there. There's history to be reckoned with. It's impossible to understand this at all without understanding how we got here over a long period of time, that the United States overthrew the democratic leader of Iran, who was moderate, within the lifetimes of presently living people, right, and installed a hated authoritarian leader and supported him, and also supported Iraq during the Iraq-Iran war, and so caused the deaths of countless Iranians during that war. And also shot down an Iranian civilian airliner and killed hundreds of people and then refused to apologize for it. So it's very bizarre when you hear Iran talked about as a place that just has this pathological hatred of us without any consideration of the context, any consideration of the fact that we've made it very clear that we intend to have nuclear weapons and we intend to allow Israel to have nuclear weapons, but we don't want Iran to have nuclear weapons. And from their perspective, Obviously, that's incredibly menacing and threatening. You suggest a sort of turn-it-around exercise to imagine how everything would sound if the other side had said it. So imagine that everything had occurred the other way around. 
Iraq had invaded the United States rather than the United States invading Iraq. They'd done so because we have weapons of mass destruction, which we actually do. And people in the United States had started violently resisting the occupying force. Would we classify that as terrorism? We probably wouldn't. We would classify that as legitimate resistance. Now, neighboring country, uh, if Canada had come to assist us, and then the top Canadian general had been assassinated, right, we would consider that an unlawful assassination. Terrorism and assassination look very, very different when they're seen through the other perspective. Now, there was something else that you pointed out that I'd actually noticed myself, and it was a different sort of revisionist history, using the power of suggestion to make a relatively anonymous villain, Soleimani, into a long-standing Osama bin Laden <laughs> antichrist. I mean, there are some profiles that appeared of him from time to time. And in fact, you know, they were very complimentary, right? Mainly because Soleimani was known for providing valuable assistance in the fight against ISIS. Well, he also, I mean, just to be fair here, he also did create and fund proxy militias yeah. all over the region that were quite deadly and destabilizing. And he came to the aid of Assad in that brutal, grossly immoral regime's uh, civil war. Yes, he did. And that's important because actually what it really shows is that we don't care about things like that until we do, right? Saddam Hussein was committing horrible atrocities, right, throughout the 1980s, and the United States was supporting him. But all of a sudden, a switch flipped, and Saddam Hussein became public enemy number one. So then we go back and we go, look at all the atrocities he committed. So you often see that, this revisionist attempt to take someone who was always committing indefensible acts, but was our friend. And then when they're not our friend, suddenly we go, look at all the indefensible acts. President Trump kicked off 2020 by ordering the assassination of Qasem Soleimani, the top Iranian general who was considered to be the second most important man in Iran. Everyone's worried what happens next, what kind of retaliation is coming America's way, and whether we're on the verge of some sort of major new conflict in the Middle East, the kind of war that would make Iraq look like a walk in the park. So here are seven things you really should know about Donald Trump and Iran as things heat up. Number one, guess what? Trump, the former real estate mogul and reality TV star with zero background in foreign affairs or national security, doesn't know anything about Iran or about the man he killed, General Qasem Soleimani. Don't take my word for it. Take his. Are you familiar with General Soleimani? Yes. I, I, go ahead. Give me a little. Go ahead. Tell me. It, well, he runs the Quds forces. Yes. Okay. Right. Do, do you expect and I his think behavior? The Kurds, by the way, have been horribly mistreated by us. No, no, not the Kurds, the, the, the Kurds forces. The... Got that? The president confused the Kurds force with the Kurds and didn't have a clue who Soleimani was just a few years ago. Uh, you was giving me name after name, Arab name, Arab name, Arab. Yet last week he gave the order to have him killed from his golf course and apparently was stuffing his mouth with ice cream when the news of the general's death broke. Number two, Trump has long seen a U.S. attack on Iran as a way for the U.S. president to get re-elected. 
Yeah, re-elected. Again, don't take my word for it. Just listen to Trump himself. Here he is in 2011. Our president will start a war with Iran because he has absolutely no ability to negotiate. He's weak and he's ineffective. So the only way he figures that he's going to get reelected and as sure as you're sitting there is to start a war with Iran. And of course, with Trump, there's always a tweet. In fact, multiple tweets. Yet another reminder that the one word you need to understand Trump is projection. What he accuses others of thinking or doing is often what he himself is thinking or doing. Number three, Trump tore up Obama's Iran nuclear deal in order to launch his very own maximum pressure campaign, which led to this very crisis. But here's the thing, Trump tore up that deal against the advice of his own generals and his own defense secretary, who said it was working. Secretary Mattis, do you believe it's in our national security interest at the present time to remain in the JCPOA? Yes, Senator, I do. Number four, Trump and his people want to blame Iran for 9-11 because they know that'll help them make the case for war. Vice President Mike Pence took to Twitter last week to claim that Soleimani and Iran had helped 10 of the 12 9-11 hijackers. Which is not just absurd because Shia Iran and Sunni Al-Qaeda are mortal enemies and the 9-11 report says it's BS to suggest Iran was involved in September the 11th, but also 12 hijackers? Weren't there 19 of them? What on earth is Mike Pence talking about? Number five, the reason he tore up the Iran nuclear deal is that Trump is a hawk and has always been a hawk. So what was Maureen Dowd smoking when she wrote her Donald the Dove, Hillary the Hawk column in the New York Times in 2016? This is a president, remember, who has twice bombed the Assad regime in Syria, reduced Mosul and Raqqa to rubble, vetoed a congressional attempt to end US involvement in the Saudi bombardment of Yemen, and overseen a five-fold increase in drone strikes throughout the region and beyond. Yet on New Year's Eve, the New York Times still insisted on bizarrely referring to this president's, quote, reluctance to use force in the Middle East. Ridiculous. Number six, Trump's belligerence, though, has to also compete with his massive ego. The president is a narcissist who wants to be loved. So as much as he likes blowing things up, he also likes people blowing smoke up his ass. Think about it. If Soleimani was assassinated because he was a bad guy with American blood on his hands, then why hasn't Trump given the order to also take out Kim Jong-un, who basically murdered US student Otto Wombier? Oh, wait. Trump has a thing for Kim, right? And then we fell in love. Okay. No, really. He wrote me beautiful letters. If only General Soleimani had written love letters to the President of the United States, perhaps he'd still be alive today too. And number seven, last but not least, it's important to remember that whatever we're discussing, whether it's domestic policy, foreign policy, the economy, Trump is unhinged. That's a constant. That's a given. So when we talk about what he's going to do about Iran or why he did it, you also have to remember that this is not a rational man, a man who operates within normal parameters. This is a man who accused his predecessor of tapping his phones, who thinks climate change is a Chinese hoax and wants to use nuclear weapons to stop hurricanes. This is a man who gave us Sharpie Gate. Who's going to hit uh, not only Florida, but Georgia could have uh, was going toward the Gulf. And so this is the man the deranged, unwell, paranoid, conspiratorial, know-nothing president now getting ready to escalate further with Iran. Happy New Year. You know, and one of the things that we, uh, 
that we're up against, I think, mm -hmm. is uh, certainly the Democrats are not in a position or uh, don't seem to have an inclination to push back on any of this. I mean, I'm sure some of them think it's politically challenging to do so. Uh, I think other, but, 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 but uh, you know, uh, also I think I, I hear a lot of, uh, not from you, Danny, but from, you know, a lot of people in social media and commentary, columnists and so on, are outraged, rightfully, correctly, that Donald Trump would co commit an illegal and extrajudicial assassination. But, it, it, you know, if they come from the Democratic uh, side of the House, I don't hear a lot, for example, about the precedent that was set when Barack Obama authorized the assassination of a United States citizen by drone attack, which was followed by the drone killing of his 16-year-old son, also a United States citizen. So, I mean, it seems to me, you and I have talked about this before, but it seems to me that while uh, the Democrats, uh, when in power, have not been uh, lunatics at the Trump level, that and, and I commend Barack Obama for the nuclear deal uh, with Iran that that uh, Trump has torched, but uh, it seems to me we don't have in this country a coherent worldview being expressed that says, you know, this is not the only way to exist and be a nation in a in a complicated world. Do you know what I'm trying to say? One hundred percent. I do think, and I agree with you, that uh, Barack Obama's finest hour on the world stage was uh, the Iran nuclear agreement and the uh, concomitant uh, normalization or attempt towards normalization of relations with Iran, the de-escalation of a near state of war. That was his finest hour. It's gone, right? It's, it's been wiped off the slate. The problem, I think, with Democrats is that they, like the Republicans, while, while less insane, usually— Right. And I'm not afraid to say that anymore, by the way. I, the Republican Party, with a few exceptions, is so far off the rails that I no longer worry about ad hominem attacks. I'm fine with it. But anyway, the Democrats, while less while less insane, they, too, act like history started yesterday right. or specifically like we're operating in a vacuum. And history started on one of two uh, days, either Friday when Trump assassinated Soleimani with respect to this issue or uh, in November 2016. Right. The day that Trump was elected, history began. And the problem with this and the problem with letting Barack Obama off the hook, as I've written, I think it's the title of my articles, the, um, the problem with this is, is, is manifold. Uh, specifically, if you let Obama's Justice Department off the hook for secretly sanctioning the killing of an American citizen without due process, right? They said we had the right to assassinate Anwar al-Awlaki and his son. And no, by the way, his daughter was killed in a Navy SEAL raid under Trump. But nevertheless, we devastate this family, okay, without due process. And when asked about it, which very few Democrats asked about it, right? Very, very few. They just gave up on what passed because they liked him. Uh, but the few Republicans, like the Rand Paul types who asked about it, were told, no, 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 no. Nothing to see here. Everything's fine. All's well that ends well. Our Justice Department investigated and wrote a memo. And they said it's fine. Now, how is that any different from Trump's assassination, right? Okay, I think his assassination obviously has more geopolitical ramifications and is more risky and, 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 you know, it's a, it's a worse behavior because of the potential results, but it's the same process. It's the same. Unit. Look, you cannot have your own appointed Justice Department that works for you, right, that has only limited independence and less and less every year, every administration, cannot have them sanction it. The idea of the separation of powers is that, like in a courtroom, there's supposed to be an adversarial relationship between the three branches so that they're asking tough questions. Right. So that you have Senate investigators who don't work for the president investigating, you know, or you have courts right from from the judicial branch 
you know, observing whether something is legal and constitutional. So I think it's really dangerous to let Obama off the hook. The last thing I want to say about the Democrats, um, the only thing I uh, hate more in Washington than a Republican is a Democrat, uh, at least the establishment one. They provide us, just like the major, the two major liberal, right, liberal news networks, uh, they provide us with very little context to this whole operation, right? So the assumption at the start, the starting assumption for both Fox News and MSNBC is Suleimani bad. Right. Suleimani bad. Suleimani terrorist, right? Before anyone says we shouldn't have assassinated him, they feel obliged to say, oh, yeah, he's he's a bloodthirsty monster. Now, I'm not a particular fan of Suleimani, so in a sense, I'm doing that too. But you know what I want to hear? That we're never going to hear ever, ever on the three major cable news networks. What I want to hear is why does Suleimani exist? Why did the what does the IRGC exist? Why did Iran feel it necessary to build relationships and proxy forces throughout the greater Middle East? Could it be because more than anything driving Iranian policy is to avoid one thing, which is the catastrophic Persia destroying, nearly destroying existential Iran Iraq war? the bloodiest conventional war of the second half of the 20th century, whereby the United States supported, backed, funded, and, and enabled an, an illegal aggressive Iraqi invasion of Iran that almost resulted not only in the fall of the new Islamic Republic regime, but the destruction potentially of Persian Iranian society. Now, in order to, to avoid that, Iran felt it necessarily to, just like we did after World War II, to avoid another cataclysmic war, to put its intelligence agents, right, to put its proxies out there, to try to build relationships and create checks on a future invasion, specifically an invasion that was enabled by the United States, which, of course, is the most dangerous kind of invasion. So what I want to see is context. I want to see someone talk about, hey, we overthrew the first democratically elected prime minister in Iranian history. I was okay? going to mention America, that. Yeah, yeah. America started it. So yeah. We started it. I wrote an article called Who Started It? I'll tell you who. We did. Right. Okay, we did. We started this whole thing. What, what about America, you know, supporting the invasion? What about America shooting down an Iranian airline, killing 290 civilians? And then Vice President Bush saying he refuses to apologize. He will never apologize for America, even when we kill civilians. What about Operation Praying Mantis, when in response to a non-fatal underwater mine that damaged one of our ships, we decided instead to sink their Navy and kill several, who knows how many, Iranian sailors? How did Iran respond to most of those actions? Very, very restrained which is why the title of my latest or my second to latest article, which came out yesterday, is called what? The Islamic Republic of Restraint. In this instance, and in almost every past instance in our relationship with Iran, it was Tehran, not Washington. It was Tehran that gets the gold star for restraint, that gets the gold star for avoiding outright war. It doesn't mean that I uh, absolve the Iranian government of its human rights abuses domestically or some of their actions uh, internationally, what it does mean is that Iran deserves, not Trump, Iran deserves the credit for restraint, specifically because I truly believe they missed the American troops on purpose. What is clear to me in either case, is that the Americans are trying to cover uh, what happened in Iraq, perhaps to a degree, uh, by uh, making this the number one news. First of all, it's, it's psychological warfare against Iran um, that's being carried out. It's, they're trying to create a sense of fear that you know Iran is unsafe. But also, I think um, the Iranian strikes on the American base 
was very significant, even though they played it down, and that every single Iranian missile passed through the U.S. air defense systems uh, successfully. The Americans failed to down a single missile. And this was when they were, you know, prepared for some sort of Iranian strike. So they were on alert. Then from the satellite photos, we know that all the missile missiles struck the targets. They, none of them fell into fields or, you know, they, they all either hit hangars or buildings. There was, they, they hit something and it was clear that that was what they were supposed to hit. So the Iranians basically sent the message to the Americans that, you know, we can destroy your helicopters and your, and your drones and your uh, high-tech weapons with ease. You can't stop us. And therefore, all your military bases in the whole region are vulnerable. And also those countries who provide the United States with these bases, like the United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia, the Iranians have told them that if there is an escalation, you will be seen as adversaries because you're helping the Americans. And if the Iranians with this cap these capabilities, and Iran has many thousands of missiles and huge numbers of drones, if Iran goes after Emirati and Saudi targets, I think the Emirates wouldn't last more than a couple of days. And Saudi Arabia would be completely devastated very quickly because it is completely dependent on oil and all, all, all their key assets are right alongside the Persian Gulf, almost all their key assets. So I think that these countries felt very vulnerable. They felt that the Americans couldn't protect them because the Americans couldn't protect themselves. And the Americans know that they can't be protected because these missiles went through the defenses and hit their targets inside an American base when they were prepared for some sort of attack. I think that's the real story in all this, and that the U.S. military, despite all these expenditures, is, um, is incapable of uh, bringing down uh, in, incoming missiles. And these are not even Iran's more advanced missiles. Yeah, I think that everything you just described, I mean, Iran played this all very wisely um, and was so restrained. But despite being restrained, I mean, really like it was like a chess game. Um, and I don't I hate using cliches like that, but it really, really was like the U.S. was like cornered. And it was like, you're, you, you have nothing, you can't play anything else. I mean, there is the fact that Trump is crazy and kind of unpredictable. Uh, but at the end of the day, I was really, I mean, the fact that, that the UAE and Saudi Arabia were like, please, like, we need to deescalate this, just demonstrates how capable Iran is to fight a war. I mean, this is, the, when is the last time, seriously, when is the last time a country with a conventional military Re, like responded to American aggression and responded in a way that made it impossible for the U.S. to continue escalating. That's right, but that's not something you'll hear in the American media because um, it's it's not in their interest. To yeah, they the media did the media. It was really interesting to watch. The U.S. media really tried to spin it as Iran is too weak to hit back by killing Americans. Like they kept, they kept um, emphasizing Iran went out of their way not to kill Americans because they know that if they do, they'll be hit back harder. And it's like, you're totally missing the point.
<laughs> like totally exactly. missing the point. <laughs> I mean, killing killing four or five American soldiers or 10, 20 American soldiers is um, is strategically speaking, uh, humanitarian issues aside, mm-hmm. is much less important than the fact that they destroyed what was in those buildings and what was in those hangars and and um, you know the, the the damage that they caused. But but also I think what the Iranians did is that like the nuclear deal, when Trump left the deal, the Iranians remained in the deal in order to put the United States in a bad position. So the international community sees Trump as the person who's causing the trouble. In the case of this crisis, again, the Iranians did the same thing. The American military carried out an act of war against Iran and Iraq because they murdered a senior Iranian war hero as well as a senior Iraqi war hero at that Baghdad International Airport. Both are the key people responsible for defeating ISIS. And then in response, Iran destroyed American weaponry but didn't kill American soldiers. So sort of like the, the nuclear deal, the Iranians showed the international community that Trump is immoral, uh, he's, he's killing people, he's creating crisis, but the Iranians are more, much more measured in their counter-response. And of course, this is something that doesn't make sense in the United States and much of Europe because Iranians are crazy, they're mullahs, they're evil, they're monsters, they're corrupt, they're, they want to rule the world, they want to kill everyone, they hate Jews, they hate Christians, they hate everyone, you know, all that sort of nonsense that we constantly hear. So when I say this sort of thing to many, not everyone, but to many Europeans or Americans, they sort of look at me as if, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm from Mars. <laughs> but I think much of the rest of the world sees things very differently than in the United States. You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, Saturday, January 25th, is the International Day of Action Demanding No War with Iran. Over the years, many of you have asked us, whatever happened to the peace movement? Well, it certainly was sidelined a bit during the Obama administration, but it's always been there, and it needs your support now more than ever. Since the news broke of Soleimani's assassination, the anti-war organization Code Pink has sounded the alarm and organized immediate protests against potential escalation and war with Iran. This Saturday, January 25th, Code Pink is leading a coalition of over 100 organizations in an international National Day of Action to demand no war with Iran. Protests will take place across the U.S. and in 14 other countries, including Canada, the U.K., and multiple countries in Europe. Their message is clear. The people of the world do not want Trump to drag the U.S. and its allies into a war with Iran that could engulf the whole region and could quickly turn into a global conflict of unpredictable scope with the gravest of consequences. Basically, 
we have to stop World War III. For weeks, Code Pink has been urging Americans to call and write their members of Congress to tell them to support Senator Tim Kaine's War Powers Resolution. If passed with veto-proof votes in the Senate, it could prevent Trump from taking any further military action in Iran without congressional approval. The Senate vote likely happened just before this episode went out, but the result will determine the course for future public demonstrations and direct action. To find a No War with Iran rally near you this Saturday, January 25th, visit CodePink.org. Be sure to follow the latest updates on Twitter, at CodePink, and via the hashtag NoWarWithIran. The segment notes include all the links to this information as well as additional resources, and as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the Activism tab at bestoftheleft.com. And now a brief climate check, because climate change affects everything. The U.S. military is one of the largest polluters in history, according to a 2009 study from the Royal Geographical Society. If it were a country, it would rank 47th in the world for greenhouse gas emissions for fuel usage alone. And that's before a potential war with Iran. Despite some awareness and more recent efforts to green aspects of the military complex, the only effective solution would be slashing its bloated budget and shuttering vast sections of it. The irony, of course, is if we didn't rely so heavily on fossil fuels, there'd be far less incentive to go to war at all. Can you stand up and be counted as a body in a crowd? Put your name on a petition with your signature so proud. Can you raise your voice so loud as you stand with head on bowed, weather beating on your brow, demanding answers here and now? Because that's how you make a difference in this fickle world of change. What do you call a country that refuses to leave another country when asked to leave? It's not, it's not an occupation. I mean, just for context, again, five US presidents in a row have bombed Iraq. Right? It's like a rite of passage for being president of the United States. You get into office, Donald Trump came into office and bombed Iraq. Every president since Bush the senior has bombed Iraq. That country has been through so much war, both internal and externally imposed. So Vanessa's right to point out that now, and those protests that were going on before, the irony of ironies for people who hate Iran, there were actually anti-Iran protesters in Iraq. In Najaf, one of the most holy cities in Shia Islam, where Iran has a massive presence, they burned down the Iranian consulate. That's a big deal. And yet most of those protesters are now protesting against the US. So great job, Trump administration, in turning that around. Um, one other country we haven't really mentioned is Israel, obviously. Only one country in the world, as far as I'm aware, came out fully behind this strike, and that was the Israelis. Netanyahu came out and said, it's a great job, job well done. The Israelis have obviously been agitating against Iran even before the Saudis have uh, for many years now. Back in 2002, uh, Ariel Sharon was telling the Bush administration, why are you going to war with Iraq? You should be going to war with Iran. Uh, this has been going on for a while. Netanyahu, in his previous avatar when he was prime minister early on, was pushing it then. He's pushing it now. Um, the Israeli security establishment actually, ironically, were in favor of the U.S. staying in the JCPOA. Um, I interviewed the former head of Mossad, Ephraim Halevi, who said, Iran's not an existential threat. This is just political bullshit from Netanyahu. Um, Netanyahu, though, of course, was very keen again. Who was the only country that came out in favor of America pulling out of the JCPOA? Iran, uh, Israel again. So the Israelis in the form of Netanyahu, not necessarily the entire Israeli political spectrum, have been very keen on this. Um, they see Iran as the last remaining kind of country in the Middle East that can inhibit them, stop them, prevent them, threaten them uh, in multiple ways. That's been a huge factor for Trump, who values his friendship with Netanyahu and the Israelis. It's also a big faction with the Christian Zionists. 
uh, in the US uh, who are uh, unfortunately do see the rapture as a very real thing that could happen imminently, to use a word uh, in the news. And it's not a coincidence that the two biggest hawks right now on Iran in this administration are Mike Pence and Mike Pompeo, uh, both of whom are hardcore evangelicals. And for those of you who don't follow this stuff, I mean, just dig into it uh, when you go home tonight. It's scary shit. I mean, Iran, Queen Esther, Mike Pompeo is on record saying he thinks it's valid to compare Donald Trump to Queen Esther from the Bible, Queen Esther being the queen who saved the Jews from the evil Persians. Uh, They genuinely see historical biblical analogies here. John Hagee, pastor from Texas, who was a big Bush supporter, now a big Trump supporter. I think he was at the embassy, U.S. embassy relaunch in Jerusalem. Uh, He's been advocating for a preemptive strike against Iran since 2005 because he believes it will bring back Jesus. Um, So when we talk about the rapture, when we talk about kind of Christian Zionists and evangelicals, it's not just about backing Israel against the Palestinians. Iran plays a massive role in this weird view of the world. And I don't think you can discount that. I mean, Trump doesn't believe in anything, but the people around him are pushing this shit. You can't undermine, you know, where Pompeo's coming from. Pompeo's been advocating for striking against Soleimani for a while. Um, part of that, I'm under no doubt, is to do with this kind of hardline, right-wing, messianic, Christian Zionist view of the Middle East. We've just heard clips today, starting with Backstory, doing what they do best, looking back at some of the history between Iran and the U.S. Democracy Now! spoke with Lawrence Wilkerson about his personal experience in the U.S. military dealing with Iran and how that relationship was trashed by the famous Axis of Evil speech. Mehdi Hassan on Intercepted ran down a bit of American history we tend to overlook. Democracy Now! discussed who Soleimani was and the significance of his death to Iranians. On the Media looked at our recent history of pro-war propaganda and what assumptions that leads to. Intercepted featured Mehdi Hassan going through seven things you should know about Trump and Iran. The Zero Hour looked at the Democratic side of our ahistorical pro-imperial politics and the amazing restraint demonstrated by Iran time and time again. Unauthorized Disclosure analyzed the retaliatory strike by Iran and explained it as a clever chess move rather than a sign of weakness, as the mainstream media would have you believe. Our activism for today is in support of the January 25th Day of Action, spearheaded by Code Pink. And finally, we just heard Mehdi Hassan once again on Intercepted discussing the Christian Zionist aspect of the U.S. foreign policy toward Iran. Members will hear more of our history with Iran as well as more on the media propaganda angle of how we keep getting talked into senseless wars. To hear that and all of our bonus content, which also includes more voicemails and commentary from me, plus ad-free versions of every regular episode, sign up as a patron of the show at patreon.com slash best of left and now we'll hear from you hi jay it's dave from olympia washington hey i just listened to the most recent episode which was number uh, 1329 a comment at the end about the current lack of diversity in the democratic uh, presidential, at least in the debates. Two companion thoughts to what you had brought up. 
I think you're right. We need to get ahead of the problem rather than, you know, support a candidate that has a very appealing on the surface identity, but whose politics you don't necessarily agree with. What we need is more and better candidates. And, you know, those come up from above. You know, the, the grassroots movement are really what push those forward. You know, the fact is that most elections kind of have a a weirdly tiered system, you know, the, the local city council person becomes very successful, then becomes, you know, county commissioner or, or then becomes governor and then, you know, maybe becomes senator and then prepares for possible presidential run. Presidential candidates don't come out of nowhere with almost no history. Well, okay. Um, presidential candidates that you should vote for don't come out of nowhere with no political history. But the other thing is, and it's, uh, it's, it's a minor caveat, but at least we can say perhaps the Democratic Party is trending in the right direction. So the 2016 batch of candidates, Hillary, Bernie, Martin O'Malley, and I remember that Lawrence Lessig threw his hat in the ring, mostly symbolically, but then I had to check Wikipedia. Lincoln Chafee and Jim Webb also had at least announced candidacies that would through pretty early. But, you know, white guy, white guy, white guy, white guy, white lady. If nothing else, there was some uh, progress made toward diversity in 2020. Hopefully in 2024, there's a, another big, messy crop of candidates and we can get a really diverse and interesting primary with uh, more uh, representation. That's the hope. As always, the show is going great. I really enjoyed the Afghanistan Papers episode. It was challenging to listen to at some point, but excellent job. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to our production assistant, Joel McKean, who helps gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Now, of course, it's just like Dave to, to beat me to this. Dave was responding to a conversation between Pat from Chicago and myself in the previous episode. Pat was calling in about the diversity of candidates in the Democratic Party running for president. I responded and, and you know, Dave, uh, you know, added a little bit more meat to those bones. It just so happens he beat me to it. I was going to do the same thing after I recorded that show and put it out. I made a couple more notes realizing that I had more to say about it and, and talk about the process of how presidential candidates come to be presidential candidates. And, and I got thinking about how, uh, in, in political terms, you know, colloquial political terms, it's described as the bench. You know, it's a clumsy sports analogy, but you can have a bench of candidates who, you know, they're not running for president. They're not ready to run for president, but they're kind of on the bench waiting to be called up. And and these are usually career politicians who are making their way through the ranks of the party, maybe from Congress to the Senate or, you know, from, from a lower position to governor, something like that. And then it is from those higher positions that they get plucked. Uh, to run for president, sometimes chosen by the party, sometimes they just, uh, you know, run themselves and, and are able to make enough of a name for themselves. But they're usually people who have crafted their careers 
with higher aspirations always in mind. What step should I take now that could lead to the next thing? And then eventually they get to the presidential race. And so I've been thinking about that, and and there's there's actually more to it. Even though this conversation is about diversity and and women and people of color running and how how to get more diversity, I think it actually has less to do with race and gender than it has to do with just the the evolution of the party and the change in in political tone the this uh, revolution we're having towards far more progressive tendencies within the democratic party sort of splitting the party between the moderates and the progressives right now but definitely trending in that direction especially especially when you look at younger voters and the direction they want to go so to explain why the People of color, the the female candidates who are running for president now are not getting th- the support of progressives. One needs to look at how the bench works. If you're one of these uh, career politicians who has higher aspirations in mind, as I said, you, you sort of craft your career and your policies and your beliefs and your actions based on, okay, how do I... How do I succeed in climbing to the next level? And what you do is you, know, you have this long perspective, you know, 10, 20 year perspective on uh, looking at what has worked. Okay. I'm in, I'm in the Democratic Party. What sort of policies work for politicians to win higher office in the Democratic Party? So, you know, if you're looking at 20 years ago, you're looking at, okay, how did Clinton win? You know, what policies did he propose? How did he win broad support with his policies? And then, you know, moving forward, what about Barack Obama? How did he win? Uh, Maybe what did John Kerry and Al Gore not do right? Like, these are the sort of things you're looking to, to figure out what has worked in the past and how can I project that into the future? So if you're coming up in democratic politics over the last 20 years, these are the role models you have. And for you to come out on the other end in the year 2020 running for president, it makes all the sense in the world for you to have generally moderate democratic beliefs. You know, you're more or less in the mainstream of democratic politics over the last couple of decades, and you're not going to be a progressive radical by any stretch because that's not the role models you have. That's, that's not what has taught you could lead to success, but that's not the only way to become a presidential candidate. The other way is, uh, there's probably a a real term for it, but I'm calling it a wave politician. Instead of a bench politician, there are wave politicians. And these are politicians who catch usually unexpectedly a huge groundswell wave of support that carries them to prominence and sometimes to victory. But that's a lot harder to predict. It's a lot harder to you know understand the exact dynamics of, of how that works, especially when you're in the moment we are now. And when I say moment, I mean from 2007 and on, because at the end of the George W. Bush era, uh, as Barack Obama's campaign theme would have you believe and come to understand, we were looking for change. And Barack Obama won that primary campaign 
as a wave candidate, someone who came basically from nowhere but jumped to the front of the pack to challenge, you know, a, a clear bench candidate like Hillary Clinton, who'd basically been running for president her whole life, which which isn't a criticism. It's just she clearly had higher aspirations forever, which is totally fine. So she had been, you know, in this uh, you know, this long term race. And then all of a sudden, oh, you know, Obama catches a wave and beats her in that election. And my reading of why he was able to do that is because the backlash from the George W. Bush era was so profound that we wanted the most progressive candidate we could get. This is when the progressive movement that we know today first started waking up and demanding a truly progressive candidate. Now, the progressive movement was very much disappointed by Obama, but we didn't know that when he was running the first time. And so it was the progressive movement that helped create this wave of support for him, whereas it was the moderates who more supported Hillary Clinton at the time, sort of wanting to reward her for her time on the bench. So you fast forward for another eight years through Obama's term, and we see basically the same dynamic at play again. Except this time, Bernie Sanders isn't plucked from total obscurity. He's been there, but he is a total anomaly because he's far outside the mainstream of the Democratic Party. And yet, once again, he is lifted by a very similar wave as Obama was. We don't really think of it that way because we think of Obama and Hillary Clinton as being these sort of establishment politicians. But really... The Bernie wave was very similar to the Obama wave, the more progressive side of the party, catapulting someone who no one thought had a chance, catapulting them to nearly the front of the pack. Obviously, Bernie didn't win that time, but that dynamic was still at play. So again, four more years later, and we see the, the pattern emerging Again, we have the bench candidates, we have the, you know the the Biden like candidates who are as establishment as it, as it gets, you know, they've been on the bench their whole lives. And and then you get sort of this this new wave, you know, the the Kamala Harris's and the Cory Bookers who are, you know, they're new to the national stage, but they've also been on the bench. Like, you know, we don't know about them because we're not operatives inside the Democratic Party, but they've been on the bench. They have been crafting their careers to prepare for this moment. And so, as I said, they, you know, their role models have been these more moderate Democratic politicians that demonstrate how to win in Democratic primaries and, and then to go on to win the national election. And so it makes all the sense in the world for any candidate that has been on the bench in the Democratic Party to be moderate. That, that is the success that they are trying to emulate. Whereas, once again, I mean, Bernie Sanders, once again, and Elizabeth Warren, even more so, represent candidates who have not been on the bench. They have not been preparing themselves to run for president. When Bernie first ran for president, he thought he was just making a statement. He had no idea that he would be as successful as he was. Ten years ago, you know, I just did the retrospective of 10 years ago, and Elizabeth Warren was, you know, in the middle of making a name for herself in the wake of the financial crisis. She was still saying very strongly, I am not a politician. I don't 
know how DC works. I don't really want to know how DC works. I want to hold the banks to account. And it was through that work that the wave caught her. A wave formed under Elizabeth Warren and lifted her to the Senate candidacy in Massachusetts that she went on to win. And that wave continued to push her to run for president. So my point is that these two camps of people, the, the, the moderates and the progressives running for president right now, aren't just divided by their ideology. They're also divided by how they got to where they are. Some have been on a career path with this in mind all along, and others, pretty much just the two of them, pretty much just Warren and Bernie, have been lifted into this position. Now, I know, I mean, Bernie's been a career politician, he's been around, but he never had any aspirations to run for president because he had no way of thinking that the country would ever catch up with him. He's been saying the same thing for 50 years, waiting for the country to catch up, and he had no way of knowing that that was actually going to happen. So he wasn't crafting his positions in the hopes of running for president. It just so happens that the country caught up with him before he died. (laughs) So... There's this division in how the politicians got to be where they are, and Bernie and Warren are the exceptions that basically prove the rule. They are the unicorns in this scenario, and to say that you know other people should be just as good as Warren or Bernie, or they should be just as progressive— it's sort of like saying that, you know, because Barack Obama and Oprah exists, there's no excuse for all black people to not be millionaires. Like, why is everyone else so lazy? You know, that, that you have to understand the structural forces at work that make it so that most people are going to end up being, in, you know, in this example, career politicians with moderate perspectives while also allowing a couple of unicorns to exist. You know, and you got you got your Barack Obama and your Oprah who become incredibly wildly successful people of color while the rest of the community is being structurally oppressed. And you got your your Warrens and your Bernie Sanders who managed to poke through with the help of a wave of support coming up underneath them. But to to say that everyone should be like that isn't isn't reasonable. Being white didn't hurt those people at all. But I think that the thing that is more at play is these these structural forces of how these candidates got into the position of running for president. And the way that we should look at these dynamics going forward is also structurally. Like, sure, a wave candidate is nice every once in a while, but they're hard to predict and they're hard to create. What we should be doing is building the bench and making sure that bench is more progressive. This is what Dave was saying and sort of beat me to, is that we need to systemically build our bench to be more diverse and more progressive than it ever has been. And there's every reason to believe that that is, in fact, happening. It started with the 2018 election in response to Trump, and I believe that it will continue. More women, more people of color are going to be inspired to run. People like AOC are proving that it can be done and inspiring the next generation. And, you know, candidates, not just like AOC, but Bernie and Warren are role models for people who may maybe they're going to take the career politician path because you know who can plan to be a wave candidate no one so these these people who are laying out their careers with higher aspirations in mind may be able to take more progressive stances thinking times have changed 
moderates aren't the ones that get people excited. Moderates aren't the ones who win national elections. We've just watched a bunch of moderates lose national elections, while the more progressive candidates, the candidates, you know, like Barack Obama, who, you know, we thought was very progressive at the time, those are the ones who win. So anyone who's planning a career in politics with higher aspirations in mind are going to start making this turn. And, and we, we just can't blame them for not already existing because there's always a lag. There's been an evolution in politics. There's been an evolution in the Democratic Party. We're coming out of the Reagan era. We're entering into a new progressive era right now. And, and so to say, like, these career politicians should be more progressive, it, it just doesn't make sense. The, the natural laws of evolution weren't going to allow them to have taken that path. If they'd been more progressive their whole careers, they wouldn't be candidates for president. And Bernie and Warren are the exceptions that prove that rule. I would love to hear more from you guys on, on this or anything else. So as always, keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash bestofleft. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And now to finish up, here is today's news by Limerick. If you haven't been uh, keeping up on the impeachment trial, here's pretty much everything you need to know from at Limericks on Twitter. Since Donald's transgressions and lies grow plainer as details arise, the right, quite committed to have him acquitted, must cover their ears and their eyes.